0: The most important aspect or, or part of any um, project, any building project, is the laying of a solid foundation. Um, the, 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 the squareness, the strength, the depth <laughs> uh, uh, of a foundation, and the layout of it uh, determines the, the longevity and the quality. Uh, And and also the strength and and the size of the building that you're ultimately seeking to build. And if the foundation isn't right, then no matter what you do uh, after the foundation, the building is never going to be right. You can make it look good. You can um, make it so that to the naked eye, it appears to be all the things it's supposed to be. But without the right foundation, it will never be uh, what, what it looks like or what it's intended to be. And in time, uh, it will only be a matter of time, uh, shorter or longer depending mm-hmm. Um, But the flaws will begin to expose. There will be cracks, uh, things will shift, things will break down, and uh, ultimately the the end of that structure is going to be that it will be uh, beyond repair. It won't be worth it to fix it because the root of the cause is so far underneath everything um, that the whole thing just needs to be abandoned. Now, the problem with – it's not a problem, but the the issue with the foundation part of of any project is that it takes the longest and it yields the least visible results Uh, because in order to have a strong foundation, you have to dig deep. And Sometimes you can dig and dig and dig and think that you've gone far enough, but, uh, but yet the ground is, is still soft under you, and so it means that you have to keep digging until you hit something solid. There has to be something that's bedrock in order for the foundation to, to last, and, and so uh, years can go by. In a project, you could be maybe seeing something that you're driving down down Route 9 or, or wherever, and there's a project going on, and you say, it seems like they've been working on that forever. There's cranes, there's equipment, there's men, um, but we're seeing months, go, months and months go by, but nothing is happening. And It's not true. There is something happening. The most important thing is happening. Once the foundation is laid... The rest of it is is relatively quick. Things can move fast by then. then. Then all of a sudden you see the foundation finish, you drive by and it seems like every week you go, man, they're really moving on that. Things are really cooking and it's it's going. But foundation is so very important. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 7. It's also recorded in Luke's Gospel. After uh, giving the the longest and and most in-depth and and really famous sermon that Jesus preached, he finished it by saying this. He says, Whoever hears the words that I say and does not do them is like a man who built a house, but he had no foundation. He built the house just upon plain sand. And so the house was built and everything looked good on the outside. But when the storms came and the winds beat on the house, the house fell because it had no foundation. He said, however, he that hears these words of mine and does them, he is like a man who dig deep and he laid his foundation upon the rock and built upon that. And then when the storms came and the winds beat against that house, it could not take it down because that house was built upon a rock. So he likens the life of a man to the laying of a foundation and then the building of a structure. And it's possible for a Christian life to be built two different ways. One upon the sand where there's no foundation and the other upon the rock where the foundation is dug deep. And those two lives are going to look two different things, and they're going to produce two different things. One is going to look good for a while, but produce no lasting fruit. And the other one is going to take some time for things to develop. And there's going to be a little bit of digging, and there's going to be some emptying, and there's going to be some uh, questioning and some pain and some wondering as to why. But the outcome of that life, though it takes longer, it's going to be lasting, and the fruit from that life is going to be good, and the structure is going to be strong and solid. So what we're looking at now as we observe this portion of David's life is we're seeing in this building of a man, we're seeing the foundation being prepared and the foundation being laid, and so as we've seen in the chapters up to this, we've seen David called, we've seen David chosen, we've seen that David is, is in God's hand, but now we're going to see the emptying of David. We're going to see the, the the heavy equipment come in, the cranes being set up, and the excavator, and the bulldozers, and, and all of these uh, things, and the shovels, and the buckets, and we're going to see God begin to do a work in David's heart of stripping him down, of digging out all of the old man, of getting out all of the ways of man, of pulling out all of the the fault lines and the weaknesses that later on would serve for destruction and for uh, um, confusion. We're going to see God begin to remove all of that uh, in his wisdom and, and according to his perfect knowledge, but to David's confusion and to David's Really suffering as he endures and wonders what it is that God is doing. Now, what we saw in chapter 18 where we left off is we saw that the Lord is with David. It says three times in that chapter that the Lord was with David. And it says three times in that chapter that David behaved himself wisely, each time building upon the strength of the word. In other words, there was an increase in David's wisdom as he moved from uh, moment to moment and place to place in his progression of God's call. So David is a man who is growing, and we also saw that Saul is a man who is diminishing, We see that three times in the chapter, it says that Saul feared, and he feared specifically David, to the point where at the end of the chapter, there's a quaking fear. There's an excessive fear. So David growing in wisdom, Saul growing in fear, and it says twice that the Lord had departed from Saul. So we see one man rising up, and we see another man falling down. Now, the amazing thing is that in God's, Vision or God's sight, a man being lifted up in God's eyesight is actually being torn down in man's. And that's what's happening to David right now. He's lost his job, he's lost his favor. And amongst Saul and, and, and in the very close inner circle of Saul, uh, he, he has now had two attempts on his life. Saul trying to take his life by putting him into vulnerable situations in the battle and, and, and David beginning to be stripped. And yet, even though he's being stripped down, God sees that he's being raised up. And it's an incredible paradox that can happen in the life of a man is that God can look at you and I, and he could say, I'm building them up. And we can look at everything that's happening to us and say, I'm being stripped down. And the two things are happening at the same time, because part of God building us up is the breaking of us down. And anyone that's going to have a solid foundation and have a lasting structure, and that's going to become what God ultimately wants them to be, must go through the part of the journey that David is on right now. You cannot avoid You can avoid it, but you can't avoid it And last. It has to happen in every life. Uh, and so we see it beginning now or continuing with David. As we come to chapter 19, we're going to see David's final departure from the palace. He's going to lose his position. Then we're going to see David leaving and losing his home. Uh, everything that's that's familiar to him, and then he's going to lose even his counselors, the people that can help him. And so more being taken away from David, as it were, in chapter 19, even though things are, are, are very much being added to David at the same time. And so we begin in verse 1. It says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan, now his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. So the, the, the jealousy of Saul has advanced to a point now where no longer is it just a secret intention in his mind to try to um, uh, put David in a vulnerable situation and see him destroyed by the Philistines, but now uh, he's growing more desperate as he feels his his control uh, slipping away, his grasp on whatever it is that he's trying to hold on to is, is slipping and he cannot Hold on, while David is, is constantly elevating, now he, he, he uses his kingly authority to advance the plot to try to take David out. And he says it to his son and to his servants we need to kill this young man. But it tells us in verse 2 Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. And so Jonathan um, disclosing the plan now to David. So therefore, I pray thee, take heed or be beware, take care to yourself until the morning and abide in a secret place and hide yourself. And here's what I'm going to do. And I will go out and stand next to my father in the field where you are, in the near the hiding place where you're sitting. And I will commune with my father concerning you And what I see, that will I tell you. And so I'll have a conversation with him so you can hear it out of his own mouth, you know, what his intentions are, and you can hear from my own mouth in his hearing, you know, what my intentions are towards you. And so Jonathan, verse 4, spoke good of David unto Saul his father and said unto him, let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because... He has not sinned against you, and because his works have been towards you very good. So this doesn't make sense, your your, uh, hatred of David or your suspicion of David. Everything that he's done has been right. There's no reason for him to die. For he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine, and the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and you did rejoice why then will you sin against innocent Blood, And so he gives him essentially three reasons here why Saul shouldn't do any harm to David. Number one is that David showed Saul no harm. There was nothing deserving of death in David's behavior towards Saul. Number two, it was evident that God was with David. Jonathan says to Saul, the Lord was with him. And he brought a great ish, uh, victory in ish, Israel through. And then number three, you yourself even did rejoice when Goliath, that uh, um, big problem, was taken out by David. There's no sense at all in your desire to kill him, is what Jonathan is saying. And so in verse 6 it says, And Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swear, and we've learned enough about Saul by now to to know that that doesn't mean too much, does it? (laughs) But Saul swear, as the Lord lives, he shall not be slain. Now, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 19, it says that a man of great wrath will suffer punishment for if you deliver him, yet you must do it again. (laughs) Now, what happens here is that Jonathan essentially persuades Saul not to do something that's completely irrational. And you would almost think that at this point, Saul, that Jonathan got through to him. And if you were Jonathan and you put yourself in that position for a minute and you, you know, persuasively spoke words into some insane person's ear and and, and they they made a a proclamation and swore by the Lord that they weren't going to keep you would walk away from that going, man, that that was pretty good today. I, I was able to uh, turn this person's opinion and, and solve a problem. And, and man, I can't wait to tell David everything's going to be okay in this whole thing. But here's the real issue concerning uh, King Saul in this, is that though his mind has been temporarily persuaded, his heart has not been changed. And the thing that's going on inside Saul's heart is that he is uh, insecure, he's jealous, He's envious of David, he's grasping on to power, he's far from God, and there's been no real repentance in Saul as it concerns the root of the cause. And the root of the cause is that he's not right with God, and he's got things in his life that he needs to deal with. And until the heart is affected, it doesn't matter uh, what takes place temporarily in the mind. If a change of mind doesn't translate into a change of heart and a change of life, then the change of mind will only be temporary, no matter how, how persuasive the words are. And, and that's exactly what's happening here. Jonathan is persuasive, and he turns Saul's uh, feelings for a moment, but Saul's heart and the condition of his heart hasn't been changed, and therefore nothing really in all of this is is going to uh, change. I have, you and I, uh, as human beings, we have uh, two responsibilities as it concerns, uh, the issues in our heart. We all have issues in our heart. You know, for Saul, we know what they were, the, the pride, uh, the, the envy, the power, thirst, uh, the control, narcissism, you know, all that kind of stuff that was going on inside of him. For you and I, it might be different. We have we have things going on according to uh, whatever we, we have. And, and you know what they are without me having to just try and, and think of them in my mind, you know. But when when those things come to our attention, that there's an issue in our heart, uh, I have two responsibilities. Number one is a change of mind, a change of mind. And and that means that I I look at my sin and I see it for what it is. And I see it that this is sin, okay? And and this maybe is something that I, I accepted or I've dealt with or I've lived it or maybe even I've liked it. But I'm I'm changing my mind concerning whether or not this thing is good or bad. I'm, I'm agreeing with God that this thing is bad. That's the change of mind. That's only half of what I'm required to do. The other half is that now, now that I've changed my mind concerning this, I have to bring this thing to God. And I have to say to God, God, this thing in my life is sin, And I'm asking you to change it or to remove it, get it out of my life completely. See, we don't have the power to do that. We can't take something out of our own life. We can agree that it's not good and shouldn't be there, but we don't have the power to change our heart. We can't do it. We can change our mind, but we cannot change our heart. Okay? Now, if I don't change my mind, then God won't change my heart. But if I change my mind and I bring it to God and ask him, then he can change my heart. But I must agree with God and change my mind, and then I must bring it to him and ask him to change it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now Saul doesn't do that. His mind is temporarily changed, but ultimately there's no real change within him at all. And so here's the here's what happens next. It says in verse. Uh, 7. It says, and so Jonathan called David, and Jonathan showed him all those things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as times passed. And so it seems as though the problem's been averted. David is restored to his position. He's back inside the palace, and I'm sure that David is thrilled. He thinks, man, I'm glad that storm is over. We got through this one. Really dodged a bullet there. God, I get the lesson. You know, though, though someone else might need more, I don't. Lord, I get it. I'm, I, I'm happy. You know, humbled. Good God, this is great. Back in the palace, not so much. There's some loose soil, David. The foundation needs to go just a little bit deeper than what we've produced thus far. And so, notice what happens in verse eight. It says, "And there was war again." And David went out and fought with the Philistines, and he slew them with a great slaughter. Good for David, not so good for David, (laughs) because uh, victory for David is not good, we found, with Saul around. And so they fled from him, and then verse 9, and, couple David's great victory, the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand and David had deja vu. (laughs) David, David played with his hand. And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence and he smote the javelin into the wall and David fled and he escaped that night. So, um, What we see here is we see that David in this situation now has a great victory. And just like happened in the last chapter, David ends up right back where he was. We've gone a full chapter now in David's life and and some time has passed and all these things have gone down. And David ends up right back where he began. Why? Because God hasn't yet accomplished in David through this trial The thing that God initially set forth to accomplish through this trial. Um, The problem with human help, and, and every one of us from time to time seeks human help and obtains human help. Uh, we, we have a problem and we know just the person to get us through that problem and we contact that person and uh, we either obtain counsel from them or they pull some strings or they loan us some money or uh, whatever, whatever, whatever it is, you know, and we kind of get through that problem. We think, wow, that was good. You know, I, I was able to get through that thing. The problem with human help is that sometimes human help flies in the face of the purposes of God. The purposes of God are to produce something, and sometimes human help can interrupt those purposes. And all that means is that it's going to take a little bit longer now for God to do what he initially set forth to do, because God is going to do what he initially set forth to do. God sees what we need. We don't know what we need. He knows what we need. And so God, in his wisdom, lays out our lives like a blueprint before him. And he says, "Ah, I see this here in in the soil. I see this in the life. And what I see is that in 20 years, if this goes unchecked, this is going to be a train wreck in this person's life and everything is going to fall apart. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ordain a circumstance in this person's life right now so that 20 years from now, that's not a problem. It's been taken care of and it's been dealt with. And so God brings forth that circumstance. And so he wants to fix something. He puts us in a fix. And a circumstance rises up. We get fired from a job. Or we get into a conflict with, with someone who's close. Or some, something happens you know, in our lives. And it's God's way of, of dealing with something. He's got us dealing with it. And then what we do is we see this problem. And because we're men, and this is what men do, we say, i got to fix this. i got to fix this fix. That God has has brought me into. And so we dial up our human help. We, we call upon the, uh, the resources of our intellect and our uh, experience of collective years. And we, we we think about how people get through these kind of things. And, and we plot and we plan and we do all this. We arrange. And, 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 and lo and behold, we succeed. We fix it. We, we solve the problem. And, and we have fixed the fix that God has initially begun within our life. Well, here's the problem is that God's still going to do what he sees needs to be done in our lives. So now God has to raise up another fix to fix the fix that we erected so that we could fix the fix that God put us in in the first place. (laughs) Do you see how complicated things can become? David ends up right back where he started now because God's not done within his life. When God lights a fire in your life, Sometimes let it burn, let it burn, because he's doing something. He has a purpose in it. And so uh, um, the the help of Jonathan here uh, doesn't end up helping in the long run. Now, notice the the means through which God brings this uh, circumstance back upon David's life. It says, the evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul again, and the javelin was in his hand. The second thing that we observe in this is not just the problem with human help, but also the fact that God uses evil forces to serve his own purposes. The Bible says that God has created all things for himself, even the darkness. God uses all of it. In the book of Job, we see a righteous man, a man who hated evil, a man who did what was right. He honored God in his behavior. He he kept himself pure in all his ways. And the Bible tells us that on a certain day, the angels of God had to give an account to God for the things that they had been doing. And it says that Satan was also among them. And Satan appeared before God and God said to Satan, he spoke to him and he said, where have you been? What have you been doing? Give account for yourself. Now, most people don't want to, uh, I'm sorry, most people are glad to hear it. Satan doesn't want you to know about that passage. Satan doesn't want you to know that he has to answer to God. He would have you to think that he is God's counterpart, like the yin and the yang. And that as God is to the kingdom of light, sovereign, Satan is to the kingdom of darkness, sovereign. He is not. He is under God, and he must answer to God, and he cannot cross the boundaries that God has laid before him. Satan's reply to God was, I've been going to and fro throughout the earth, throughout the breadth of it, seeking whom I may devour, looking for those whom I can destroy. And God said to Satan, words I hope he never says concerning any of us. He says, have you considered or examined my servant Job? that he loves righteousness, that he hates evil, that he serves me in all of his ways. And Satan replied to God, he said, of course he serves you. You've set a hedge of protection around him and I can't get to him. And you've blessed him. You've given him so much. Anyone who's protected like he is and anyone who prospers like he is certainly is is not going to you know, have, be an issue or be a problem. And so God said to Satan, okay, you think so? Have Adam. Go get him. I'll lift the hedge. You can go in and you can have your way. Only, God said, you cannot touch his body. You can touch his substance. You can touch his stuff. But you cannot touch him. And so Satan goes, and Satan in one day destroys all of Job's wealth. All of it is taken from him, and all of his children die through natural disasters all in one day. All of those things ordained and issued by God. And Job goes, what What did I do? Why is this happening to me? But it says that in all of his response, he did not sin against God by charging God foolishly. And then another time, Satan stands before God. And God says, where have you been? He says, going to and fro throughout the earth, seeking whom I may devour. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? That even though you've done what you have to him, he still loves righteousness, hates evil, and walks with me according to my ways. And, and Satan says, flesh for flesh, all that a man has will he give in exchange for his flesh. You let me touch his body. Every man lives to preserve himself. He will curse you to your face. God says, go, but you cannot kill him he can't take his life again god gives satan permission with a boundary and satan cannot cross that boundary god is sovereign and so job's health is afflicted he has some kind of leprosy or boils that are upon his skin even his wife looks at him and says curse god and die you know you're a miserable wretch Why we want to see Georgia no. you know <laughs> What did you say? I I hope Georgia doesn't do that. Oh, good. I thought you said, I want to see Georgia do that to you. I was like, wait, that's not funny. (laughs) Now, the end of the story, you read chapters 38, 39, 40, 41, and 42. What you discover is that God had a purpose in allowing all of that to happen. And the purpose was that God would be revealed to Job in a way that Job never would have known him had those things not happened. After all was said and done, Job's reply in response to God was this. I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. You have come into clarity, God, in all of your personality. I needed to know you. And then Job said, and I also had a big problem with self-righteousness that I didn't even know was there. And he said, therefore, I abhor myself and I repent with dust and ashes. And it says that not only did God restore to Job everything that was taken from him, but he blessed him sevenfold on top of it, and he had even more sons and daughters after the trial than he had had before the trial. And so God used darkness, God used evil in the life of his servant in order to bring about good for him ultimately. The Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians Chapters 11 and 12, he would talk about all of the difficulty that he was facing in his ministry, the opposition, the trials, the shipwrecks and all the rest. And then he says this, he says, on top of all of that, he says, there was a messenger from Satan directly given to me from God. Can you imagine the apostle Paul had an evil spirit from the Lord tormenting him? He said, there was a messenger from Satan sent by God to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. And three times I besought the Lord, Paul says, for this to be removed. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And thus Paul's response to God was, therefore I will much rather glory in my infirmities that the power of God may rest upon me. He accepted the fact that God was gonna use an evil spirit in his life in order to perfect the fruit that God ordained Paul to bring forward. And here we see God employing the forces of darkness upon a jealous, maddened king in order to get David into a wilderness where the foundation can be properly laid. God uses it for good, though there's pain in the process. It's an evil spirit from the Lord. Well, it tells us now that David escaped that night. And then verse 11, it says that Saul also then sent messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you save not your life tonight tomorrow you will be slain. There's some desperation here, David. You can't look at this uh, from, from a, a laid back perspective. So Michael let David down through a window and he went and he fled and escaped. And Michael took an image, some kind of a mannequin or a bunt, something that they had, you know, those what are those things called? The head, you know, whatever, some statue that's there in, in David's house, And she laid it in the bed, and then she put a pillow of goat's hair for his head or for his bolster, and she covered it with a cloth. You can only imagine what that looks like, but she's she's trying to mimic a sick person here. And so when Saul's messengers uh, came to take David, she said, he is sick. And so Saul sent the messengers again to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may slay him. So Saul says, I don't care if he's sick. Bring the whole bed if you don't want to touch him. Bring, bring him in the bed, and I'll take care of this once and for all. And so when the messengers were come in, behold, there was an image in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster. And Saul said unto Michael, his daughter now, Why have you deceived me so and sent away my enemy that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul and and said, he said unto me, let me go for why should I kill you? So she lies to Saul now concerning David's escape. And she says to Saul that, you know, David threatened my life. He threatened to take my life if I didn't let him go. And so what was I to do at that point? I was, I was literally fearful for my life. Uh, now, there's a partial truth in this lie. The partial truth is that she was fearful for her life. Uh, the, the, the partial lie or the, the lie in this is that David's the one that was the threat to her life in the situation. That's not true. The truth of the matter in this situation is that Saul is the threat to her life in the situation. Why is it that she feels the need to lie uh, concerning the escape of David? David. But yeah, in the sense, like she knew un- underneath it all, she knew that Saul was in such a place that if she were to say, he's my husband, dad, <laughs> and I pro- and I, I protected his life because you're out of your mind, you know. It would make things, it would suck to be hearing it. Yeah, she, she'd be dead. And so this is self-preservation here uh, on, on account of this woman, Michael, concerning David. Now, she's going to turn out to be not the best wife and not uh, uh, the best uh, friend to David in, in the whole thing. But I don't think she's necessarily to be blamed in all of this. She knew about Saul's plan to kill David. But more than that, more important than that is that, listen, listen, guys, she knew Saul. She knew who she was dealing with in this man, Saul, and fearing for her own life. She knows that Saul will kill even his daughter. Listen to me. Saul will kill even his daughter to preserve self or to preserve what self wants in this thing. And that's an incredible thing to to think about concerning the daughter of a man and what she knows concerning her father. Concerning this issue, and and it's an issue that really relates to men, this issue of authority, and this issue of of narcissism and control, and this issue of uh, of the unbridled self-life, I want you to understand something, is that if self, if the self-life and the the self-life of a man is allowed to grow and it grows unchecked, then it will grow so strong That there is no logic, in fact, there's nothing that will stand in its way, ultimately. Even if it means the life of a child. And that's where Saul is at this point. Is that his self has become so outrageously strong that he would kill even his daughter in order to preserve what he wants for himself. She knew, Michael did, the man that Saul had become and that he would do anything. Understand this, guys, is that your kids, whether you know it or not, are watching, they're listening, they're observing, and someday everything that they see in your life is going to come into perfect light and it's going to make absolute sense, even if it doesn't make sense now. Sometimes I'm a, as a dad, I'm tempted, uh, and I probably do it to a degree, is I, I treat my kids a certain way thinking that they don't know better. You know, like uh, they'll, they'll say, Dad, can we play a game? You know, or dad, can we – and I'll just say, no, I can't do that right now. Uh, I've got to take care of something. And then I go back to whatever it is that I'm doing and I think, you know, well, that's just enough. You know, they're, But, but what, I, what I'm failing to realize when I do that is that I, I'm, I'm denying them their request for my time or for my attention or, or, or for, for their dad. And then what they're, they're – they're, they're realizing that denial but they're also seeing what I'm doing. And somewhere in there, it's registering that what I'm doing at that particular moment is of greater importance to me than spending time with them. Now, I know that's a a very, you know, minor um, example, you know, in the whole thing. But someday they're going to grow up to a point where that's going to make sense to them, where whether they can verbalize it or not, they're going to realize that there are things in my life that are a higher priority to me than they are to me. And, and and I can think as a dad, well, because they're little or because they're young, they don't understand, they, they don't really see it. They do see it and they understand it. Now, the same thing relates to the more important things, the greater things. When I have a, a sin that I'm nursing or that I'm holding on to, and that has a place within my heart and in my life, my kids might not know about that. They might not know what it is. They might not know that I'm dealing with it. But here's the thing that's amazing about kids is that they grow up and they become adults. And our kids are going to struggle with the same things that we struggle with, aren't they? And when that struggle comes, they're going to one day realize where that struggle originated. You know, this was in my parents. You know, now that I think about it, I see this all over them. <laughs> and now that's why they, and that's why, and that's, and all these connections being made. And, and, and they, they realize, they realize what was hidden from them for so long. And it's a remarkable thing to see Michael, this grown child of Saul at this point, knowing what's in her father to the point where she can say to David, you need to get out of here. My dad will kill you. In order, she knows that. Now Saul never took her aside and said, daughter, I'm really struggling with this pride thing. (laughs) She realized it. she sends David on her way. It is essential, men, listen, It is essential that we learn what it means. And I'm speaking to myself. I'm not preaching. I'm speaking to us. That we learn what it means to die to self. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross, die, and follow me. And we must learn to do that. Romans chapter 5. verse five, I'm sorry, Romans chapter eight, verse five. It says, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They think about the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, is enmity or at war with God For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So then, they that are in the flesh, or living according after their flesh, cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, then he doesn't belong to him. And if Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. Now listen, here's our verse. For if you live after the flesh, you will die. But if you, on the contrary, through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. God has given every one of us that put our faith and trust in him the power, if we choose, to put to death the things of our flesh. But if we nurse them along and allow them to live, mark my words, the day will come when those things will overpower common sense. And the power of the flesh life will destroy everything that is precious in a life. And every one of us in this room has lived long enough to see that happen to someone. And not one of us in this room is strong enough to prevent it from happening to ourselves should we allow self to continue. For Saul, it was a narcissistic, control freak, hang on to power at all costs mentality. And it brought him to a place where he would even kill his own offspring to preserve it. And don't think it can't happen to you in whatever thing grips your affections in that way. For Paul, this is not, I'm sorry, for, for Saul, King Saul, this is not being a man. This is being a fool. He is being utterly foolish in, in, in the doing of this thing. So it says in verse 18 that David fled. So David has now uh, lost his position again within the palace. This is David now. He loses his home. He will will not go back uh, until um, 10 or 15 years from now when all this is over. He will not go back to this house because it won't be safe for him to do so. So he loses his dwelling place. He loses all of his possessions. He loses everything he has. He loses his income at this point. Now put yourself in that place right now, right where you are. Think about it. If right now today you lost your job, or if you're retired, you lost your income, whatever whatever that source is, or your savings, you lost it. It's gone. And you also lost your home. And right now, just just right now, out of the blue, you have to leave. And what you have is what's in your pocket and what's on your person, and that's it. That's what just happened to David. And so we read it on the page, and you can just go, okay, well, David fled. You know, We know the end of the story. He's going to be rich enough later on, whatever. Imagine it happens to you. That's what David's going through at this point. What does that feel like? When a man who apparently is favored by God, being blessed by God, he just lost almost everything he has, and it's only just beginning. Verse 18 So he fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel. Now, people that uh, go through this kind of pain, what do they look for? A counselor. <laughs> right, So he goes to Samuel to Ramah and he told him all that Saul had done to him and he and Samuel went and dwelt at Naioth. And it was told Saul saying, behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. That's where the school of the prophets was that Samuel had begun. And Saul sent messengers to take David and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as appointed over them, the spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. So there's a move of God happening at, up at uh, Nioth and these, these messengers of Saul are affected by the move of God there and they joined into the worship service. And so then verse 21, when, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers a second time and they prophesied likewise. And so Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. So you see, you, you can begin to see the supernatural protection of God over David, even in this. You know, God lets his spirit come upon these messengers uh, as, as they come to take David. And so verse 22, "...then went he also to Ramah, and came to a great well that is in Siku. And he asked and he said, where are Samuel and David?" and one said behold they be at naioth and rama and so he went there to naioth and rama and the spirit of god was upon him also and he went on and prophesied until he came to naioth and rama and he stripped off his clothes also, speaking of uh, his his royalty, his royal garments, is that so affected by the spirit of God upon his life that he removes even his position, uh, the symbol of his position of royalty. And it says that he prophesied before Samuel in like manner, and he lay down naked, probably still wearing, of course, his linens, they didn't, that's very proper culture, they didn't You know, whatever. And all that day and all that night, wherefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, God using this in order to give David time and a chance to get away. But notice what happens in verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, and David fled from Nioth in Ramah, and he said before Jonathan. So now Saul has lost his counselors. He can no longer safely uh, go to Samuel and obtain counsel from Samuel or comfort from Samuel concerning this thing. You see, one by one, God is taking from him all of the things that he can lean upon. And he's ultimately bringing David to a place where there is nothing else but David and God. And, And you ask the question and you say, well, how do I know when the foundation of God has been uh, dug, dug in my life uh, to the point where there's not gonna be any more digging <laughs> and that now we can maybe see some, some growth or some advancement or something uh, to show for all this time that I put it. You know when the answer is? Is when it's you and God. When he becomes the most important thing within your life and he becomes the, the, the one that you lean upon, the one that you depend upon, the one that you look to uh, in your problems, the one that you put your complete and total trust in uh, for, for everything in your life, not just not just in the circumstances, but even in your ways, the way that we live our lives. Is it God's way and, and are my eyes fixed upon his kingdom and upon his person? And is my heart conformed into yielding to his ways where where I believe with everything in me that God's way is the way in this and that the only one that can help me in this situation is God? Not a physician, not a doctor or medication, nothing. Not a job, not an amount of income or amount of money, not a certain level of intellect or a promotion, nothing in my life will I put my trust in other than the place of the living God. That's where God is bringing David to in this Because God knows that's what David's going to need in order to be successful in the position that he's created him for. And it's true for every single one of us. And so David being taken down in this, on purpose, calculated by God. And it's going to continue for a while. It's not done yet. Now we're going to stop there. But next what's going to happen in chapter 20 is now David's going to lose Jonathan. So even, even the friend that God had raised up to help him in chapter 18, now Jonathan's going to be removed from being able to help David. And David is ultimately going to bring, be brought to a place where we see at the end of the next chapter that he is going to weep before the Lord and he's going to weep to the point where he's got no strength left in him even to weep. It's a painful place that God is bringing him to. God is the author of painful places. He does it in our lives for his purpose. To resist is futile, they say, and foolish, because ultimately it's for the good, if we'll let him.